I, I called up my program officer at National Institutes of Health, and I said, I'm really interested in studying salvia divinorum. And she goes, no, you don't want to study salvia divinorum. You want to study crotum. And there's a guy at University of Mississippi that you need to talk to. So that is Ed Boyer, Master Physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School, talking about his history with Kratom. And the reason we are talking to Ed today is because he's a bit of an expert. Uh, his history goes back farther than many of ours. And why are we talking about Kratom? Well, it's hard to avoid it right now. Uh, if you look at it, it's all over the news, both in terms of health and legal action. Uh, a little bit of history. Um, Kratom uh, was almost uh, scheduled back in 2016 when the DEA announced that they were about to schedule it. But after a flood of public complaints and a letter signed by a number of members of Congress, that effort was stalled. And then more recently this year, uh, the FDA has released some reports based on reporting from the Adverse Event Reporting System um, that it's concerned about 44 deaths involving Kratom since 2011, up from 36 uh, reported in November. And so you're hearing more about that. And then everyone more recently is aware of a huge amount of Kratom that's been now recalled because it was contaminated with salmonella. So this uh, herb is making the rounds. And so we're hoping to talk about it today with uh, one of our experts, Ed Boyer. So stay tuned for a good discussion of Kratom, the legal aspects, the pharmacologic aspects, and we'll even try and bring in some good board fodder when we talk about the Bradford Hill criteria. All that and more on this episode of Talks Now. Well, I'm, I'm actually from, I grew up on the campus of the University of Mississippi. So this was fortuitous. I called him up and we hit it off and he, he said that Kratom is really interesting. It's used to treat opioid withdrawal and addiction. It's been used for generations in Thailand as such. So we agreed to talk more later on when we had something more structured to talk about. And in the meantime, somebody appeared at one of the Boston hospitals after a seizure while using Kratom. And the people at uh, the Harvard, the major Harvard teaching hospital had never heard of it before. So I got involved through the Poison Control Center. We went over and interviewed the patient, and we got the biological material, the actual plant matter that he was ingesting, so we could test that, and we proved that it, yes, was kratom. And then we, were, we were able to do pretty good biological testing on him, not just a standard drugs of abuse screen, but really detailed, comprehensive drug testing in blood and urine, and we were able to prove that he had only one other medication in him, modafinil, that he said he had taken. So we wrote that up and published it in early 2008, and that's where my involvement with Kratom began. For some people that aren't familiar with it, so I think you alluded to its history in, in Southeast Asia and its use. Uh, it sounds like some people naturally uh, were chewing it. However, um, additionally now, uh, especially in the United States, it seems like the dried leaves are sometimes pressed into gel capsules or used in, in teas and then ingested. Yeah, you can buy it as a number of different formulations from online vendors here in the United States, but its traditional use is either chewed or formed up as a tea or a decoction 
And depending on where you are, it's either called a tea or in Malaysia, for example, it's called kratom juice. And while the majority of use is definitely uh, done by people who buy the product and then use it at home, there are occasionally some uh, quote-unquote kratom tea shops in the United States, notably in the Florida and elsewhere, uh, although other jurisdictions like in Denver have recently taken to trying to ban it. So a lot of heterogeneity across the country. But what really, I think, fascinates people about the plant is its pharmacology. And from a, from a toxicologic perspective, do we have a theory as to what the active, active uh, constituents are? The active components are uh, the, the natural products. It's called in the chemistry world. The, the active natural products are two species at least. One is called mitragynine and the other is called 7-hydroxymitragynine. Mitragynine is a little bit less potent than morphine at the mu opioid receptor. 7-hydroxymitragynine is several times more potent than morphine. But that compound, the 7-hydroxy compound, is present in far smaller amounts. Now, what's really interesting about kratom is if you take rats, and I'm, and I'm going to get it confused because I, I don't do rat testing all that much, but the general principle will apply. If you take rats and you give them an extract of kratom, they'll have uh, good pain tolerance to, to a couple of different types of pain testing. If you just take mitragynine and 7-hydroxymitragynine and give it to rats, they only have improved pain tolerance to one of those tests. So there's something else in kratom that's responsible for its analgesic effect, but nobody really knows what that is. Okay. And it seems like looking into it, Mu and others have tried to um, do some or, or have some testing done on sort of receptor affinity. And it seems like there's certainly, we, we focus on opioid receptor affinity. And so there is some Mu receptor affinity, but it seems like there's also some Kappa and Delta opioid receptor affinity. And, and what I hear from people is that the theory behind that is that some of the kappa opioid receptor affinity might help with pain, but also might have less issues with addiction. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are people in the medicinal chemistry world who say that pure kappa agonists are the magic bullet in opioid research. Opioid research. It, it's saying that you can you can not only treat people, but you can induce aversion to opioids because that's one of the that's one of the biological effects of the kappa receptor. The problem is that the receptors are relatively close in structure, so that to get something which targets only one is incredibly difficult to do. We we did the testing and found that it bound a whole range of different whole range of different receptors in the central nervous system. Mu opioid for which treats pain, kappa opioid, which induces aversion to opioids. But it also binds serotonergic and adrenergic receptors too. And that's fascinating because those are the very same receptors that are also targeted in non-opioid-based treatment of pain. When people say there's no evidence that Kratom uh, hits mu opioid receptors. It, it seems like that's a that's a bit of an untruth. There is some awareness that it does hit a variety of receptors. What you said is medically untrue. Uh, it's scientifically untrue. Kratom binds to the mu opioid receptor, and okay. in fact, 
they've done structure activity relationship work comparing how you can modify the mitragynine molecule, the active natural product in kratom. They change the chemical structure to identify how it affects binding at the mu opioid receptor. So for an agency to suggest that it doesn't bind mu opioid is just plain wrong scientifically. Okay. And just to kind of round out that discussion, I think uh, when we think about uh, agonists, opioid agonists, realistically, right now, there's there's uh, heroin, which is relatively short acting. There's a variety of opioid pain medications. And then on the other side of things, in terms of longer acting opioid agonists, things like uh, Suboxone and Methadone, which we often do use as uh, opioid replacement therapy, because the idea for a variety of reasons, but partially is because they just, they last so long and hopefully avoid a little bit of the peak effect. There's less of a redosing incentive and you get that kind of smooth pharmacokinetics. And it seems like with Kratom, the research that I've seen uh, seems to identify similar pharmacokinetics in terms of if you take it as a T, the peak concentration that I've seen appears to be maybe about 40 minutes, maybe a little longer or less. And then there's a long terminal half-life of about maybe about 23 hours. Is that uh, consistent with what you've been seeing? I think so. The problem is that you know, kratom is a uh, an addictive substance, and kratom binds to the mu opioid receptor, and it's used by people who have already had problematic opioid use. So, if you look at patterns of use by, say, heroin addicts, in you know who, you know, if you just talk to them and say, how often do you use kratom? They'll tell you that they drink it four to five times a day. So, uh, you know, I get that the pharmacokinetics is, you know, it's got a long elimination half-life, but the problem is that, you know, the elimination half-life is just a measure of what's present in the blood, not necessarily at the receptor in the, in the central nervous system. And you take that with a particular behavioral pattern of opioid use and you link in the subjective craving of opioid I don't know where the truth shakes out of all this, but the fact remains that users tend to dose multiple times per day. So it's not it's not a direct correlation with methadone and suboxone. No, that that's a great point, and I think that's partially where some of the friction is coming up. Is is uh, regardless of your opinions about opioid replacement therapy, if someone is on methadone or suboxone. Ideally, they are getting it um, prescribed by someone. So there is a second party who is aware of their frequency and of use and their dosing of use. And because uh, a kratom, as of today, is considered, you know, a biological uh, product uh, or a natural supplement, it's it's not regulated right now, meaning that someone might use it once a day, but very often uses it multiple times a day. And so if I found out that one of my patients was taking clonopin every 30 minutes, I might have some problems with that, even though it's longer acting. We've, we sort of addressed that some people are using this uh, to try to ameliorate symptoms of opioid withdrawal, possibly because of past addiction. It seems like some people are attempting to use it for analgesic effects also. And then I would assume, just like anything else, that there must be some recreational use. Oh, yeah. I mean, all those things are true. You know, my patient was using it to 
to treat opioid withdrawal. There were a group of individuals. I, I had an NIH-funded study a few years ago looking at people with people who self-treated chronic pain with opioid analgesics purchased without a prescription from internet pharmacies. Around 2006 or so, 2007, state boards of pharmacy and the Drug Enforcement Administration shuttered a lot of those online pharmacies. And my study population all switched over to using Crotum. We can debate whether or not that was actually problematic opioid use and they're treating opioid withdrawal, or you can argue that it was somebody who was treating their chronic pain with an all-natural supplement. I think both of those arguments have a certain degree of merit, but the fact does remain that there are folks who clearly use Crotum solely for recreational purposes. We are aware of one patient who presented to a Rhode Island hospital who was injecting Crotum because he liked the way Crotum made he liked the way Crotum made him feel. And then there are publications and things like the I think it was the Daily Kansan, the University of Kansas newspaper, who described a few years ago tea parties that people were having on campus. And you can't drink if you're underage, so they would just ingest the opioid, the opioid analgesic and have a party a different way. The thing that was different about Crotum is that in low doses, it also has mild stimulatory effects too. So it tended to relax people while making them more talkative and you know, it seemed to lead at least for a short period of time, at least long enough for one publication, the Daily Kansan, to recreational use on one of the college campuses in the country. Okay. And then just to kind of cover things, it seems like so some people are using, and when they use, they often continue using, although some people have said that they've they've used Crotum uh, to sort of get off other opioids, and then they themselves have stopped um, using Crotum, but, but there's no because it's not managed by anyone. There's no one enforcing that. It's just the person individually. And then some people have talked about sort of a slight crotum withdrawal state, which which it seems, you know, similar to an opioid withdrawal state. They get kind of some myalgias, um, have some trouble focusing, uh, have some trouble sleeping. I think runny nose was thrown in there. Is that is that uh, what you've seen? Yeah. And I think that's actually pretty remarkable because, you know, like in my clinical experience, you know, like this is me talking to patients at the bedside. You know, like I've had people go from injection drug use, injection hydromorphone use multiple times per day to transition to crotum use, to stopping crotum cold turkey. And all he had really, his biggest complaint was a runny nose. And that's pretty remarkable if you think about it. Yeah, no, that's true. That's, that's quite a kind of a, uh, you know, people talk about they go from uh, cigarettes to uh, pipes to chewing tobacco to a variety of other things. It's, it's quite a one-step cessation program. And Ed and I talked about testing and just an important reminder that Crotum is not going to show up on a typical urine drug screen, not going to show up as an opioid. You can do some advanced confirmatory testing with LCMS and some other methods via blood and urine, but not something that's going to show up on a typical emergency department substance evaluation. What are your thoughts on its availability and safety and, and research? We don't know what's in Crotum. If we could guarantee that it was manufactured according to good manufacturing process, you know, practices, if we could guarantee that the components were pure and you had a consistent concentration of active product, it's a pretty safe molecule if you follow a couple of rules. And one of those rules is don't ingest anything else with it. 
in terms of scheduling, I think it's um, I think it's wrong to schedule it as make it a schedule one for the simple fact that if you make it a schedule one in the same way that the DEA scheduled salvia divinorum, where you schedule not only the natural product, the plant matter, but things containing the natural product, as well as mitragynine and 7-hydroxymitragynine, it has the potential to snuff out a large amount of research, which really is pretty useful because the safety profile of kratom is awfully good. There are the DEA, sorry, the, the FDA is absolutely correct. There are a number of deaths associated with kratom, most commonly in the setting of ingestion of other high potency opioid analgesics, which themselves can kill, or in the setting of proconvulsant medications which can lead to seizures. And seizures is one of the adverse events of kratom. But also in the setting of multiple other substances being used. So common sense rules apply. Don't mix your medications if you don't need to mix your medications. And you alluded to your interpretation of some of these adverse event reports, which I assume have gone through MedWatch or then some of, through some of the um, forensics monitoring systems. But it seems like, like if we we're going to try to use Bradford Hill on this, Now, for some of you that are unfamiliar with that, the Bradford Hill criteria are a group of nine principles established by epidemiologists uh, initially used to study the relationship between cigarette smoking and lung cancer, but are nowadays a helpful tool for trying to determine whether epidemiologic evidence indicates a causal relationship between uh, a cause and effect. So in this case, uh, kratom and death. We'll put a link to more information on that uh, in our show notes and our website. Like if we were going to try to use Bradford Hill on this, while it's theoretical that there's some opioid agonism, so there's a theoretical mechanism, and and while there is some temporality because people have the kratom on board, the fact that there is usually significant co-ingestions that could explain deaths or severe outcomes, and the fact that the widespread use of kratom is not you know, we don't have everyone dying in the streets. Uh, it seems like under Bradford Hill, this might not be the strongest causal linkage. Yeah. And in fact, if you look at Bradford Hill, one of the criteria is biological plausibility. There's actually some real scientific question as to whether or not kratom can even cause sufficient respiratory depression to, to cause death. And that's because kratom may not Kratom may affect the activity of a molecule called beta-arrestin. And beta-arrestin is a fascinating little molecule associated with the mu opioid receptor that seems to modulate respiratory effects of mu, the mu receptor. So if kratom doesn't, you know, if kratom affects the activity of beta-arrestin, then you may not have respiratory depression from kratom itself And therefore, that brings the entire biological mechanism into play. And it's likely, I think, the adulteration of medication and the ingestion of other substance, not mitragynine's biological effect itself, that is responsible for deaths. That's a hypothesis. And I freely admit that it is. But there is a little bit of evidence that allows some of us 
to form that hypothesis. Any any tips if if there's an emergency provider? It sounds like you actually, I was going to ask you this question, but you've already sort of answered it. If you're an emergency provider and you see someone in your ED, if they seem to have an adverse effect to kratom, you want to, I guess, treat them like anyone else uh, who's using and has an adverse effect in terms of talking to them about some of the potential downsides. But you mentioned rightly, um, if they aren't having adverse effects or otherwise, warning them about co-ingestion. And I think, as usual, walking the middle road of not saying it's it has um, properties, it has opioid properties, it must be innately terrible. But also, I think we both chuckle when we hear people talk about how it's a natural supplement, so it couldn't be bad for you. You know, the the other the other big take home point. I just kind of hinted at it before. You know, if you've got a seizure disorder, we don't know enough about kratom and its ability to induce seizures. So if you've got a seizure disorder, I think you'd best stay away from the substance. I think that makes total sense. And that wraps up that interview. Uh, just some reminder take home points. So kratom uh, does appear to be an opioid agonist. However, it's got a number of other effects, and it's unclear if those effects lead to respiratory depression. Uh, also, kratom uh, uh, adverse effects are often related to combining with other substances. So counseling patients not to mix and also counseling patients with seizure disorders to stay away from it is a good idea. I'm sure we'll see more as this topic evolves, both in what we know about it and in the regulation. I want to thank Ed Boyer for coming on the show today. As a reminder, you can leave us comments and reviews in the iTunes store or check out our website, talksnow.org or our Twitter feed, and you can always drop us a line at TalksNow at TalksNow.org. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. TalksNow is produced with support from the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology.